Now, the definition of a river offered by the Cambridge Dictionary is a natural flow of fresh water across the land, into the sea, a lake or another river. I want to offer another definition. To me, and to many people across the globe, a river is a dynamic nexus, inspiring and sustaining livelihoods, ecosystems, cultures, innovations and societies. In short, a river is a source of life. Rivers are one of those things that for most of us flow in the background and will continue to do so indefinitely. Whilst we might not think of them playing an active part in our daily lives, they are in fact critical to the functioning of our planet. Two billion people rely on rivers directly for drinking water. They provide habitats and homes to over 100,000 freshwater species. They sustain and connect ecosystems by cycling nutrients. They provide food, transport, trade and energy for our growing population, sustaining entire civilizations. They have done all this for millions of years. Yet they might not be able to for much longer. We are in a global water crisis. The threats of over-pollution, over-exploitation, habitat destruction and climate change continue to grow, yet many rivers have been left on the back burner and forgotten. My name is Katie Ellis and I'm an ecology student, adventurer and water lover. I grew up in South Cambridgeshire in the UK, in a village straddling a river called the Cam. I have decided to explore the stories behind some of Europe's rivers, what it's like for the wildlife and people who live alongside them, and what lies ahead. My hope is to inspire a renewed interest and love for our rivers. If we can reconnect people with our waterways, we stand a chance at saving them and all that they sustain. I began my journey at home, along the River Cam. Though the Cam is arguably one of the historically and ecologically most important rivers in the UK, pollution from chemicals and sewers and over-extraction of its water have left it one of the most stressed as well. I wanted to explore how its ecology and geology shaped Cambridge's past and present and what the future holds for nature conservation along its course. So I followed the river on foot for a few days, talking to locals, scientists and conservationists about what the river means to them. First of all, I wanted to gain an insight into the geological history of the Cam. So I met with Professor Gibbard, an eminent geology professor at Cambridge University. So the river um, valley here is, is relatively young geologically. He explained that the River Cam is made up of three tributaries, the Cam, the Ree and the Granta. All of these are chalk streams, watercourses characterised by their crystal clear water, stable flows and high mineral content. It is these very conditions which have allowed biodiversity to flourish in the Cam's ecosystems for millennia. Hippopotamus uh, remains are very common in the last um, in the last interglacial sediments and it looks like hippo's been in, in found in this country before in earlier in the in the pleistocene but uh, it's really characteristic of the last interglacial river sediments and together with things like straight tusked elephant 
and uh, bison and uh, lion. And so you, we, we mustn't think of creatures like hippopotamus as being just restricted to Africa as they are today, but they were perfectly happy living in the Cam and in the Thames and underneath Trafalgar Square, for example, there are deposits of this age and they've also produced hippopotamus. And are these similar to the hippopotamus we see today yes. or bigger? Hippopotam hippopotamus amphibious is its, its uh, Latin name and it's exactly the same, yes. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> so, British rivers were once home to hippopotamus, elephant and other megafauna. A few thousand years later, human settlements emerged and the river became a hub of culture and trade. I walked to one of the three sources of the Cam, in a village called Ashwell, which is known for its unique chalk springs. I stopped by the village museum to learn more. I'm here this afternoon with Sarah Talks, archaeologist and assistant curator at Ashwell Museum. Now, Sarah, the settlement of Ashwell has been around since prehistory, is that right? It certainly has, yeah. Archaeological finds that we have here in the museum include flint tools that really take us back to the earliest people. Uh, we believe we've got some that actually are Neanderthal in the making. Uh, flint occurs naturally here in the chalk uh, geology and obviously people were picking up flints, shaping them to use for different things. We've got hand axes, we've got blades, we've got sort of things that carve notches, uh, all sorts of things that people were people were doing with the flint tools. So the chalk and the chalk streams themselves were actually key to societal evolution back in the, well, back in prehistory. They certainly were. I mean, here, the springs that rise through the chalk um, were here again at the earliest time and, and they would have attracted animals and which in turn would have attracted people and then the availability of flint and wood to make those tools for hunting uh, you know means that people found it a very you know conducive place to live and stay I think and we've got monuments that people built quite close to the springs we've got a Neolithic henge monument not like Stonehenge with big stone blocks but this would have been wooden posts set into the chalk but probably using the chalk as a kind of very white uh, and, and very sort of striking setting for their henge and that's just situated above the main springs of the village today. The springs do come out at many different sites actually around the village so each of them has something to say. The main central springs um, was used for gathering watercress and it was used as a place to wash your clothes and to gather fresh water and things um, throughout history. Uh, but the other springs associated with Roman shrines, uh, with Saxon religious things and uh, yeah, all different things depending on where they are across the village now. Saxon religious springs, were they worshipping the river themselves or just using it as a place of worship? The, the religious worship comes in in the Iron Age, I think, and Iron Age people worshipped uh, spirits to do with location and geography. So they worshipped at springs and streams and wooded sites and hills. And if you think about Ashwell, they've got it's got all of those things and, and would have had all of those things. So the most famous um, shrine we have, actually, we know about from the Roman times, and that was the shrine to the goddess Sununa. Uh, we have a display here in the museum about about Sununa, but 
The goddess Sununa is not known anywhere else um, in the country or in fact um, across the Roman Empire, so she's, she's unique to Ashwell. We know of her because a metal detectorist found a hoard um, crumpled up metal objects which he didn't initially recognise as being as significant as they were but it included the, the figurine of a statue, uh, a female statue holding some, some votive things in her arms but archaeological excavation afterwards actually found the base which has her name inscribed on it so we know what her name is we also then have that confirmed because the pilgrims who came to worship at the shrine made votive offerings in the form of plaques made of very thin metal. We have gold, we have silver and we have copper alloy. And those plaques actually had written on them messages. So we know the names of the people who gave them, but we also know that they were giving them to Sununa at her shrine. So it's a really good sort of backing up of the evidence of how important this place was. And without a doubt, that shrine is there because of the river, because of the stream, because of the springs, because of the water. Uh, you know, the Romans really liked to have their shrines at watery places like Aquasulis in Bath. Um, so, yes, it's, it's not at all surprising that this is where they chose to have their, their religious ceremonies. These chalk streams would have been places that people held in very high regard, and I'm sure that there were special places along there where you would have gone to do your worshipping, whatever that was at the time. That's incredible because that brings to mind networks of deities that are reflective of the riverine and geological networks that we find in our topography. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you, you worshipped what was there around you. If you lived in a mountainous region, it might have been at the top of the mountain, but here it would have been those amazingly clear streams where the water flowed at a constant temperature, which would have seemed quite miraculous in itself. And uh, yes, that, that's where you would have gone. It was your special place. So just moving forward in time, as the, as the village grew, as the society grew, did people move further downriver? I think that the river was used um, along its length. In fact, quite close to the Sununa Shrine, which is about a mile out of the centre of the village today, there's evidence possibly of a Roman wharf, because I think the waterway was navigable in Roman times, and I think that that's possibly a way that they brought in quite a lot of uh, supplies, probably from the Wash even, and certainly past Cambridge. And th it, there seems to be some evidence there of a wharf, but that's not in the centre of the village today, that's right on the on the outskirts. So actually the village might have sort of changed location somewhat? Well I think the village had several locations and it was probably not all called Ashwell, it was probably called different things, but it is along the line of the stream. Uh, so the central springs in the village, you know, was, was the centre of one sort of activity and then, you know, agriculture and other things happened further out. Yeah. And when did we start to see the first human manipulations of the river? When did it start to change course and be straightened and whatnot? That is a really interesting question and one to which I don't know the answer really, except that I suspect that people were always using the river to their own ends and were probably always damming things to create deeper pools and possibly taking, you know, sort of little side bits off to water things. So I suspect that people have been using the stream since it was there and, and modifying it. Certainly if you get later on in history, we have at least three mills along the length. And they were probably making things like cloth, but also grinding grain for bread and things like that. Interesting you say people were deepening pools and 
making dams because that's exactly what beavers do. But we haven't had beavers in this country for about 500 years. So it really shows how people used to interact and copy even the nature around them. Rivers help curate the cultures and the faiths that have shaped the societies we know today. They also feed the ecosystems and shape the habitats around them. The Cam, however, is not the crystal chalk stream that it once was. Centuries of straightening and more recent heavy pollution from agriculture and sewage works have left the river's water quality in a dire strait. It's not just human intervention on a local scale either. Increasing globalisation and international trade have introduced alien species into our waterways. I caught up with Isabel Ollard, a PhD researcher at Cambridge University. In the UK, and including in the CAM, we have a few species of native mussel, which are called unionids. Um, so we have the painter's mussel, unia pictorum, the swollen river mussel, unia tumidus, um, the swan mussel, anodontosignia, and the duck mussel, um, anodonta anatina. These are all threatened by zebra mussels, well-known invasives which are wreaking havoc on aquatic ecosystems across the world. Thanks to their tiny size, the larvae of zebra mussels can get into the ballasts of ships and be transported throughout our waterways, wherever the boats go. She also told me that thanks to their special features called bissel threads, they're really good at colonising concrete canals and human-modified rivers, which are all over the UK. They even cling on to the shells of our native mussels, suffocating them and stopping them from feeding. Filter feeding is a really important ecosystem service that mussels provide. We actually call them ecosystem engineers because they have played this really important role in shaping what the ecosystem looks like. Um, so by filter feeding, by clearing organic matter and especially algae from the water column, they help to push the ecosystem towards this clear water state um, and help to prevent like the build-up and development of algal blooms. And you get this kind of more biodiverse, more oxygenated ecosystem as a result. Um, and then there are some other kind of important ecosystem functions that mussels provide as well. So because their uh, shells distributed in the riverbed help to create like substrate heterogeneity, so a more kind of um, a varied material on the riverbed that provides a really important habitat for invertebrates that live on the riverbed. So insect larvae, for example, and it provides things like shelter from predators and protection from the flow of the river. Yeah, so in terms of controlling zebra mussels, Biosecurity is becoming kind of more and more thought about by policymakers, keeping track of what's being transferred between watershed. For example, there's this campaign, kind of public awareness campaign for water sports participants called Check Clean Dry, where if you're moving a boat between one water body and another, you check for any kind of biological material, clean it and then dry it. So if anything is kind of still present, it will die. And then in terms of kind of other methods to, to conserve native mussels, Basically, mussels are going to be helped by any kind of measures that preserve the ecological integrity of a water body. So things like limiting the amount of pollution that's released, especially things like sewage outflow, protecting kind of catchments, things like having a riparian buffer along waterways. So not developing or not having farmland that goes right up to the water's edge, but having this kind of buffer strip of um, like wild land just helps to preserve the ecological integrity. So thankfully, action is being taken to conserve these river engineers. It's not just subaquatic species which rely on the river, though. 
The Fenland area north of Cambridge remains a hub of biodiversity. Thanks to the region's marshes and rich soils, wading birds migrate to the fens from all over Europe to reap the rewards of such ecologically rich ecosystems. I spoke to Ellen Bradley, Head of Communications for Curlew Action, about why our fenlands are vital for curlews and other wading birds, and why there's a need to protect them. So curlews thrive in really wide open areas of which wetland and fenland habitats are obviously a really key component, but it's also grasslands and meadows and moorland areas and all of those habitats also happen to be really great for carbon capture as well um, but those sort of damp rough pastures are particularly great for curlews because they're really biodiverse there's loads of different flowers and grasses and insects and that's particularly important for chicks and juvenile curlews because when they're really young and developing they need to be eating a lot of insects um, adult curlews are pretty big. They're um, Europe's largest wading bird. So to get to that full size, they need a lot of insect food, of which you obviously get a lot of in wetland habitats. And then those wide, damp pastures are also great because there tends to be less predators there because there's less trees. So you get less foxes and badgers. Um, they don't really like wading through muddy water to get at the nests. So they're relatively protected. Um, they're also more protected from aerial predators because if it's in a big open landscape, it's harder for birds like crows to hone in on a curly nest than in, if they were in a sort of smaller field environment. Um, so wetland and fenland habitats provide that varied environment that are just so great for curlews, that lots of food and great nesting sites. But it's not just great for curlews, it's loads of other species really thrive in those ecosystems as well. However, the situation for curlews is serious, with 50% of the breeding population lost in the last 25 years, mostly due to expanding agriculture. The fate of the cam, like curlews, is hanging in the balance. Invasive species, growing industries and over-extraction all threaten its ecosystems. Cambridge is a vibrant city with a growing population, however, the demand for water has put increasing pressure on the river. Scientists have warned that the river is set to dry up if we continue to abstract water at our current rate. The question remains, what then? What will become of the wildlife, the communities and the infrastructure built on our river if it runs dry? I'll leave you with the final few words from Ellen. Whilst she is talking about curlews, I feel the message stands for our rivers too. We don't need to conserve biodiversity just to say to ourselves that we're keeping our ecosystems in balance. Isn't it enough to say that we need to protect nature for nature? So curlews are what's known as an umbrella species. So if we protect curlews, we're also going to be protecting loads of other species as well. They have a really varied habitat use. So in the winter months, they um, tend to be on mudflats and in coastal regions. In the spring, they migrate over to those rough, damp pastures, which tend to be a little bit more inland, um, also upland areas. So if we're protecting curlew habitat, we're protecting loads of other species as well. And then their feeding habits are really great for the stability of mudflats. So the way they use that really long bill to probe in the mud helps alter the distribution of sediments which in turn helps with biodiversity and kind of as a general rule, the more biodiverse uh, an ecosystem is, the healthier and more stable and resilient it is. And that resilience is really important at the moment as our world changes so fast. So curlews are really important in so many different ways, but it's more than that. They're also just a really beautiful bird. They've got that gorgeous, evocative, almost eerie call, and there really is nothing like it. And I think sometimes we forget that 
we don't need to be protecting our species just because they've got a use. We also just really need to hold on to the beauty that we've got left. This documentary was made for the River Collective, an NGO dedicated to protecting the world's free-flowing rivers. Their mission is to unite river lovers, be they scientists, artists, writers or anyone in between. For more information, please follow the links in the show notes. This series is in production throughout the summer, written, recorded and produced by myself, Katie Ellis. Special thanks to Professor Gibbard and Isabel Ollard from Cambridge University, Sarah and all the lovely people who work at the Ashwell Museum, and Ellen Bradley from Curlew Action. Music, Chocek with Zerla by Loza, and Changes by Robert John, both supplied by the freemusicarchive.org. Outro music by the amazing, as always, Verka. All that's left for me to say is thank you for your time and listening, and I hope to see you again soon. <laughs>